I'm going to read to you Exodus 4, beginning in verse 21. And I'm going to read it to you in the Amplified. Because the Amplified Bible, I don't know how many of you ever, I use the Amplified not as my primary reading Bible, but as a way to go back and kind of expand the definitions of things with all the potential interpretations or translations. And I really felt like the Amplified brought this out in a way that doesn't show up uh, in the King James or the New King James. Uh, And so I want to read it to you in the Amplified, beginning in verse 21. Now, Moses has been at the burning bush. He's received his assignment from the Lord. um, And he's ready to go and confront Pharaoh. Let my people go. And verse 21 says, And the Lord said to Moses, When you return into Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all those miracles and wonders which I have put in your hand, but I will make him stubborn and harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. How would you like to hear that? I'm going to send you to Pharaoh, and you're going to command him to let the people go, but I'm going to harden his heart so he doesn't do it. Sometimes the Lord has a higher purpose, right? And you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay your son, your firstborn. And along the way at a resting place, The Lord met Moses and sought to kill him, made him acutely and almost fatally ill. And now apparently he had failed to circumcise one of his sons, his wife being opposed to it. But seeing his life in such danger, Zipporah, which was his wife's name, took a flint knife and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it to touch Moses' feet and said, Surely a husband of blood you are to me. And when he let Moses alone to recover, Zipporah said, A husband of blood are you because of the circumcision. Interesting passage. I've often wondered about it, but I've never really studied into it and investigated it until the Lord just dropped this thing right on me. So it seems that the Hebrews circumcised their boys for 430 years in Egypt. But Moses hadn't circumcised his son or sons. Remember, Moses was raised and lived in Pharaoh's palace for 40 years. And then he lived in Midian for 40 years. And so he wasn't raised in Hebrew culture. Well, how could God use... Well, maybe... Maybe if he'd have been raised in Hebrew culture, he would have thought as a slave instead of as a prince. Maybe God needed someone who thought differently in order to do what he assigned him to do. So maybe there was a larger issue at stake. Nevertheless, he had, he had not been brought up in that culture the way that the other Hebrews had. And so then he married the daughter of the priest of Midian. And she obviously was not a Hebrew and wasn't privy to Hebrew ways, and obviously was not in favor of the bloody Hebrew ritual of circumcision. And so Moses yielded to her, and his sons were not circumcised. 
And she apparently had enough discernment to realize why her husband's life was in danger and went ahead and circumcised the boy herself to save the kid's life, to save Moses' life. In the process, she probably saved the son's life. But Moses, listen, Moses couldn't deal with the firstborn of Egypt until his own firstborn was in covenant. If Moses' own firstborn had not been circumcised, he would probably have been among those who died on Passover night. And so Moses did not have authority and could, would not even have had a testimony if he had gone to Pharaoh and said, the firstborn's going to not die on every, in every household you know, that doesn't have the Passover blood applied. And so this kind of brings another angle to it. The blood of the Passover lamb protected those who were in covenant. In the extreme grace movement of today, anyone who said a sinner's prayer claims protection through the blood of Jesus, right? Even if they live an unsanctified life. This kind of knocks the feet out from under that. Because yet, so many of these lives and families are devastated again and again. So there's a little more to it than just claiming, well, I said the sinner's prayer, and so I'm protected by the blood, right? Circumcision was the mark of the covenant. Circumcision of the heart is the mark of the covenant today. When your heart has been circumcised, you're different. You live different. You're set apart. You're sanctified to the Lord. Your attitudes are different. You walk in love instead of in bitterness. You walk in faith instead of in fear. When your heart's been circumcised, you march to a different beat. The things that motivated you before and drove you before don't have that kind of influence over your life anymore. Romans 2.28 says he is not a Jew, and a Jew is God's covenant person, who is one outwardly. In other words, under the new covenant, all of that has changed now. It's not the outward circumcision anymore. Nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he's a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart. Not in the letter, but in the spirit, whose praise is not from men, but from God. And so in the new covenant, God moves inside with the law. God moves inside with the, the work of circumcision, and he works it in the most intimate place of all, which is in our hearts. Most intimate place, obviously, physically, was in the, in the male's... Uh, sexual organ and that's really at the heart of what God begins to cut away through a circumcision when God circumcises our hearts those fleshly sexual appetites begin to come under control first of all and then it goes to every other aspect of our nature it actually worked in Hebrew culture 
They're one of the, the cleanest sexually pure cultures in the world. Because every time a young Hebrew boy looks at his, himself as he goes to the bathroom, he's reminded that he's in covenant with God. He's in covenant with his future wife or his current wife. And he better not allow himself to be violated by not stewarding that for the kingdom. And yet, in spite of this encounter, Moses failed to circumcise the sons of Israel over the next 40 years. How much of the rebellion that Moses had to deal with was because of this failure to circumcise the sons of Israel? All the baby boys that were born in the wilderness were not circumcised. That was the mark of the covenant. Could this have been a contributing factor in Moses being pushed past his level of patience, causing him to strike the rock instead of speaking to the rock, and missing out on the transition to the land of promise? What if? I don't know, the Bible doesn't say that, but I'm like, oh my goodness, this is a pretty significant deal. Could it be that his obedience in every other area was not enough to cancel out negative consequences because of this area of disobedience? So then Joshua took over after Moses died. He led the children of Israel into the land of inheritance Right? And his first assignment was to catch up on what Moses failed to do during those 40 years. With Jericho just ahead and them having an assignment to bring down the walls, uh, the walls around that stronghold, the entire Hebrew army was circumcised. They were going to need to be in covenant to gain a new attitude. When they were circumcised, the the attitude and identity of the Hebrews changed from being rebellious slaves to sons and daughters with an inheritance. It says the reproach of Egypt was rolled off of them at that place called Gilgal. Gilgal means the wheel. Big wheels keep on turning. <laughs> I thought of that when they did that sign. I'm like, huh, that kind of ties in. The reproach of Egypt was that even though they claimed to be a people in covenant, they had never received the mark of the covenant in their bodies. And it influenced how they thought. It influenced their identity. The circumcision of the heart will bring a return to true holiness to God's people. You know, and and leaders in the body of Christ have had a passion for holiness for 
for decades and centuries. And yet our best efforts at trying to produce holiness with rules and regulations has done nothing but produce religion. Judgment. Condemnation. So this is not an old covenant version where your life is governed by a set of rules. This is a new covenant where the Holy Spirit writes God's law in our minds and in our hearts. Jesus said in Luke 11.20, If I by the finger of God cast out demons, then surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. The finger of God wrote the laws of God into the stone tablets on the mountain. The stone tablets represented the stony condition of the hearts of the people. Today in the New Covenant, the finger of God writes his law into our minds and upon our hearts. And when that happens, lies are dispelled and demonic influences lose their power over us. When God writes his law, this is the new covenant law. It's not an outward law. It's not a list of rules. It's not a standard that you have to dress by. It's not any of that. It's not how you have to cut your hair or any of that stuff. It's it's a standard that God establishes in your heart and in your mind where he, by his own finger, writes the new covenant law of the Spirit that governs your life. And it's going to be unique to you. It's not going to look the same for everybody. It depends on where you're at in your journey. It depends on what God is dealing with you at the time. So we can't deal with these things in the same way. I see a lot of people getting away with things that I can't get away with. And there's probably a lot of people that maybe they think I get away with things that they couldn't get away with. I don't know. But I know that I don't get away with some of the things that I got away with 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Because I've been in this journey now for 37 years. I just had a birthday. This past week, day after Amanda's physical, natural birthday is my spiritual birthday. 37 years ago when I began this journey. Thank you, Jesus. Yeah. And they told me to get over it. You'll, you know, just settle down. You'll get over this pretty soon. I said, I hope not. I'm going to pray you're wrong, and so far they have been. I don't ever want to get over the joy of my salvation. I know who I was. I know what God forgave me of and delivered me of. And I want to grow from faith to faith and change from glory to glory. Amen. Such were some of you, Scripture says, but you've been washed, you've been cleansed. Jesus tells us three times to beware of leaven. I want to talk about that. First first occurrence is in Matthew 16. 
16.5 says, Now when his disciples had come to the other side, they'd forgotten to take bread. And then Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, Is it because we've taken no bread? But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, O you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up? Nor the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up? How is it you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? And then they understood... That he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So once he includes the leaven of the Sadducees. This is that one time when he refers to the leaven of the Sadducees. Now the, the, the doctrine of the Sadducees was this. They denied the existence of the spirit world. And its influence on our life. And they denied the afterlife. That's a leaven that's already pretty prevalent in the extreme grace movement. We can do anything we want to. The spirit world, all that's just all mumbo jumbo stuff. That's imagination of weird people. Uh, We can do whatever we want to and the spirit world doesn't influence us. And... You know, we think there is no hell. That was just a place outside of Jerusalem somewhere. And pretty soon we're explaining heaven away as well because that's what the leaven of the Sadducees does to us. Be aware of the leaven of the Sadducees. The next occurrence is in Mark 8.13. Where it says, he left them and getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. And now the disciples had forgotten to take bread and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. And then he charged them saying, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So this time he refers to the Pharisees again, but he refers also to the leaven of Herod. But what was the leaven of Herod? Well, that was a political spirit. Now, as most of you know, we're very concerned about political issues in our day-to-day. We're very concerned about the trends that are happening in our culture, what's happening in our education system, in our government, all that. And we believe that Christians need to be salt and light. We can't just isolate ourselves and ignore everything that's going on out there. But we, neither can we allow ourselves to come under a political spirit where we lose our focus on the spiritual calling that God has put on our life and the identity that he's given us as sons and daughters of the kingdom and all of a sudden we're just marching to a political beat only. You know, and, and, and saying that, I fully support believers that are called to positions of authority and influence in the, in the political world. But we cannot allow the political drumbeat to become louder than the voice of God in our life. Amen? So we have to keep that 
centered and beware of the leaven of Herod and being motivated politically, even though we are born again, spirit-filled children of God. Does that make sense? So beware of the leaven of Herod, and we could do a whole thing on that. But let me go to the next scripture, and it's in Luke chapter 12, verse 1. In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, he began to say to his disciples, first of all, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there's nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you've spoken in the ear and inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. So all three times when Jesus said, beware of leaven, he referred to the Pharisees. Once the leaven of Herod, once the leaven of the Sadducees. Now, if you understand scriptural application, you understand that when scripture repeats something, it's pretty serious. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. I mean, that was an old covenant principle already. In the mouth of, so this is not only repeated twice, it's repeated three times. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And here it says it was hypocrisy. Uh, Pharisee means separatist. Most of us grew up in a separatist culture. Whether we like it or not, we grew up in a culture of Phariseeism. The Pharisees were so convinced that they were the most righteous of all that they separated themselves from other people to avoid contamination. We have to protect ourselves. That's why they were so outraged by Jesus. Because Jesus, with all of his influence and all of his fathers, followers, would sit down with tax collectors and prostitutes and just outright sinners. And he demonstrated something that was like a slap in the face to them. Instead of them contaminating and influencing him, they were changed because of his influence on them. Jesus would even touch lepers. But instead of him getting leprosy, they would be cleansed and healed. He demonstrated that light always overcomes darkness. And true righteousness is not threatened by unrighteousness and sin. Did you hear me? True righteousness is never threatened by unrighteousness and sin and brokenness. In fact, that's where more grace abounds. Where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. That's at the end of of, uh, Romans 5. God's raising up an army today that's not intimidated by sin and darkness and depravity and brokenness. And if you think you have to stay separated from certain people because you don't want to be influenced and contaminated, you may not be where you think you are yet. 
Amen? Um, and, and, and I don't, I, I want to parse this out so that you understand what I'm saying. If God's just set you free from alcoholism, and you know that you've been set free from an addiction, I don't recommend that you go start a ministry in a bar. Don't put yourself in the line of fire of that thing that you were, that you're, that you were enslaved by and you may still be vulnerable to. Okay? Uh, I, I, I don't know how many of you remember the story, but when I got saved... I was instantly delivered of addiction to drugs and to cigarettes. And uh, the addiction to cigarettes may have been even tougher than the addiction to drugs. I don't know. But I was delivered from both. And, and after a while, you know, I got kind of immersed in the grace message. I didn't guess extreme grace was around back then already. And, uh, and I decided, you know, if I'm really free... I ought to be free to smoke one once in a while if I want to. I mean, real freedom is freedom to do it or not to do it, right? So that's how I kind of figured it out. And so a friend of mine lit up one, and so I lit, lit up one too one day. Yeah, that was, that was pretty nice. So I decided I can smoke one once in a while if I want to. Well, it wasn't long before I was just as addicted as I was before. And I battled for, I don't know how many years it was, probably three, four years, hiding it. I never hid it from the Lord. My wife knew I was doing it. Um, but I would isolate from people to indulge in my thing. And, and so, and, and I came onto staff in ministry, and I was smoking. And, uh, and the people I was on staff with, I knew that it wouldn't fly there, so... I hid it from them, and uh, I chewed a lot of gum and used cologne. Uh, but I would, I would escape. I would go out on the road, and, and I'd have a smoke a cigarette and come back, and, and my kids didn't know. And so, it, so Amanda was getting concerned because she saw that it was robbing me of time with my kids because when I went out on a, for a ride, I didn't want the kids with me because I wanted to enjoy a cigarette, right? And so... One, uh, I think it was a Wednesday night, I was ministering at the church. It was a prayer meeting night. No, it was Sunday night. Excuse me. It led up to a Wednesday. Sunday night, and I was, I was talking about when you pray, you need to pray in faith and then st- stop begging God for what you've already prayed for. Start thanking him for what, he's, for, for what you've already asked for. You don't need to keep begging and begging and begging. You need to, you need to pray in faith. And then start thanking him for what you've asked him for, that it's coming. And I saw, and she was uh, two rows back, and I saw that there was a light bulb that went on with her. I'm like, I'm glad somebody's getting something out of this, right? Well, she applied it to that situation with me, and she, so she started thanking God for setting me free. So Wednesday night, we had prayer meeting that very next Wednesday night. And uh, we had a little corporate thing, uh, you know, with Scripture. And then we split up in small groups to pray. And Amanda and I were in a, in a small group with the pastor's wife and one or two other people. And uh, th- this relatively young believer takes my hand and he says, 
you know, as we got together to pray. And he says, you need to stop smoking. Then he thought, what? Why did, I, why did I say that? You don't smoke. You need to stop smoking. It came again. Do you smoke? And I'm like, okay. I could lie, and I'd probably fall over dead because <laughs> I think I'm in the presence of the Lord here. So I better not do that. So I said, yes, I do sometimes. Try, try to water it down a little bit. You know how we do. And, and it got deathly silent. Everybody was afraid to say another word, you know, so we kind of disbanded and everybody kind of went home and I'm like, oh man, what's going on here? Lord, you, how could you expose me like that, you know? <laughs> and uh, so halfway home, we're, we're driving through Old Town Manassas, uh, Wife's in, we had a wagon. My wife's in the car with me. She's afraid to say a word because she probably knew that I wasn't in the, the best humor after that. And, uh, and so as we're driving through Old Town Manassas, the Lord spoke to me. And he said, what are you doing? And there's something about when God speaks to you, it's a, it's a sword. And all of a sudden I realized I was doing two different things at the same time. I was quietly worshiping the Lord with the worship music that was playing on the stereo. But something else was inside of me that was just outraged. And I said, Lord, and I knew at, when the Lord asked me what I'm doing, I knew I had a choice, which one I was going to identify with. And I said, Lord, I'm worshiping you. He said, so what's that other thing doing in you? I said, oh, my goodness, that is another thing, isn't it? It's not me. I dropped my family off. I went up to my office up the street, and I got before the Lord. And I said, Lord, you know that I've never hid this from you. Never tried to hide it from you, but I've had to hide it from people because of them not receiving ministry from me if I smoked. And, uh, but, Lord, tonight I'm making you a, a solemn promise that if you will take this desire away from me, I will never touch them again as long as I live. And honestly, this is not exaggerating a bit. From that day to this, I have never desired to smoke a cigarette again. He completely took the desire away from me as sovereignly as he did when I first got saved. I didn't even know how I got into that story. Yeah, there's, I mean, so, so in other words, you have to use wisdom. And, and, you know, if you've just been set free from something, don't put yourself in harm's way. And if you do uh, reach into darkness and you know that you're in, in a, uh, a dark situation, partner with somebody. Nevertheless, I've, I've told Amanda already, you know, if the Lord ever, because all of this stuff came out about, the, you know, the strip clubs and stuff, I said, I don't think it would bother me to go with her if the Lord ever assigned us to really be a father to some of these hurting girls. I don't think it would bother me a bit. And I'm not, so far he hasn't called me to that. I, that would be a challenge for most men. But I, I think I could honestly, because that's the testimony that we've heard from a lot of these girls in these situations is what they really lack is fathering. And, uh, and, I, and I, you know, with Amanda by my side, I don't think it would be a problem. 
uh, if the Lord ever called us to a, a work like that, I don't think he is. But, but I've had to search my heart about that. Jesus demonstrated that light always overcomes darkness. True righteousness is not threatened by unrighteousness and sin. John 1.4 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The New Living Version of that is, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Listen, if you've got the light of Christ in you, it's the most powerful thing in your life. There is nothing that can extinguish the light that God filled you with, with his presence. You've got the greatest treasure in this world living inside of you, in your spirit. It's the Holy of Holies. If you want to look at the tabernacle and the temple, your spirit is the Holy of Holies where the glory of God dwells. And nothing can extinguish that. You can go into the midst of darkness and you can light it up with the light of God that is in you. You cannot be overcome or contaminated by darkness. Instead, the light will always overpower the darkness. I've never yet seen a ray of darkness come into a light room. Have you? Have you ever seen a ray of darkness come into the light? No. Light always goes into darkness, never the other way around. And so if we're filled with light, we should be able to go to the darkest places. I pray God those five boys over in Mozambique get so lit up and full of the glory of God that they will get rid of them as fast as they can to get the light out of there. You know, and while they're there, that they will be bold and courageous warriors for truth and life and light in Jesus' name. We do not need to be overcome by darkness. The darkness will always be overcome by the light. You are a warrior. Once you wake up to the reality of what lives inside of you, you cannot be overcome, contaminated, or intimidated in any way by darkness. Scripture says in Psalms, and I don't have that scripture in front of me. I read it a while ago. That where dark, where, uh, wherever God is, there is light. There's no darkness there. Wherever God is, there's no darkness. You know what that means? Wherever I am, there's no darkness. Wherever you are, there's no darkness. Once you wake up to that reality, nothing of darkness can ever intimidate you or overpower you again. Amen? You are the light of the world. That's what Jesus said. I know he's the light of the world. But he said we're the light of the world because he lives in us. If he's in us, then we are the light of the world. The light of the world is shining through us. And we can never be overpowered by darkness. But I tell you, once that gets a hold of our hearts, we'll be ready to go to nations, no matter how dark they are, wherever God sends us and assigns us. Because we know that what's in us is greater than what's in the world. The culture of the kingdom is, first of all, a culture of love and honor. Real love never fails. Amen? Today, as we close, we're going to get ready for communion. And I want us to 
receive the bread and the wine a little different way today. And if the Lord's touched any part of our hearts where we've had that leaven inside of us, I want us to receive the cup asking for forgiveness, asking for cleansing. First Corinthians 11 says we should examine ourselves and we should eat and drink in that, in that way because it says there's many sick and some have died among you because you haven't discerned the body of Christ. Jesus said, as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. And wherever we've not loved and honored our brothers and our sisters, the least of these. I want you to think about who's the least of these for you. Who's the brother and the sister that you've looked down on the most? As you've done it to them, you've done it to Jesus. I want every person in this place to have nothing but love and honor in their hearts for every other person in this place. And we're going to we're going to set some buckets over here as well. And if there's any person in this place that you've not had love and honor for, I'm going to challenge you to wash their feet. Holy Spirit, I ask you to come. And I ask you to Search our hearts today. See if there's any wicked way within us. Anything in us that needs to be cleansed. That we don't try to go against the strongholds, the principalities, and the powers that are in front of us to overcome with uncircumcised hearts. And that you would restore every heart in this place to a place of pure love and pure honor for our brothers, for our sisters, and every place that we have not given you first place in our life, or we've indulged in secret things that could be just the thing for us that circumcision was for Moses and end up tripping us up, that you would shine your light on it and that you would help us today to get free, to be cleansed, to become pure before you. So that the epic battles of the ages that are in front of us would not find us sidelined or a casualty but that we would be fully equipped to be frontline warriors for you. And I thank you for doing that.